There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. Nate, it is my favorite time of year. Do you know what that is? It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the time of the year that we get to talk about our favorite holiday songs because uh, they've been playing now for a couple of weeks. They go for six weeks or so from Thanksgiving until the new year, and they're just wonderful. I couldn't agree more. And the one we are discussing today is like the Ur holiday song. It is the uber holiday song is the mount olympus of holiday songs it actually might be just the biggest song period today we're going to be talking about white christmas which actually holds the guinness world record for most singles sold of any song wow wait rewind that back for me one more time white christmas originally recorded by bing crosby and having been covered over 500 times is the number one selling single of all time. Okay, I'm just wrapping my head around that fact. So this is like in front of the Beatles. Whitney Houston. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Michael Jackson. Like White Christmas. Technically, it's tied with Elton John's Candle in the Wind. (laughs) Oh, wow. uh, Okay. Because of technical errors about when the charts formed. Interesting. But it has sold more singles, over 50 million singles. That's bananas. So today what I want to do is ask the question, why is it so successful? It was in a Hollywood film originally, but I want to suggest that we can go beyond the success of Hollywood marketing and look at uh, what internally in the song makes it so adaptive, so endlessly lovable, uh, just the biggest hit possible. Right on. Let's dig into White Christmas, the number one selling single of all time. That's so crazy. <laughs> and there are so many additions that we could listen to, but we should listen to one of the originals by Bing Crosby to kick it off. I'm of a Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen 
to hear in the snow. Last year on our holiday episode, we created a formula of Christmas song success. Do you recall? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember. But you might need to remind me some of the details of that formula. <laughs> I've been drinking a lot of eggnog recently. <laughs> Can't think straight. So first, a song has got to be nostalgic. Indeed. Second, it has got to be immensely coverable. Mm, right. And third... It has to have sleigh bells. Yes. Okay, so those are the three. <laughs> it's a very simple formula in a way. That's the scientifically proven formula of Christmas song success. Yeah. So I guess the first question is, does White Christmas correspond to this formula? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Starting with nostalgia. So I looked into this song quite a bit. I've listened to it dozens and dozens of times over the last couple of days. And I have found it just seeped in nostalgia. In particular, I find four elements of the music and lyrical interplay just amazing. Are you hearing nostalgia anywhere on the track yourself? Yeah, I'm ruminating on that question right now. I mean, certainly in the lyrics, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know. I mean, that's an incredibly nostalgic image there or thought yeah exactly so that's sort of the first thing that i thought of is that from the start the song begins in a dream right rather than starting in the present it's starting in a imagined space a place that anybody can reach into and musically the song supports the dream with this really beautiful yet very simple melody what Bing Crosby is doing here is singing chromatically oh yeah totally right he's saying he's dreaming of a white Christmas and the dream I think is represented in this chromaticism you know meaning he's playing notes that are outside of the scale creates this dream world-like quality. Yeah, whoa. Very nice, Charles. I totally see that. By using these chromatic notes that don't belong to the major diatonic home scale, we are put immediately, like you said, in this kind of dream world. Right. Slightly unreal. Yeah, it's very... Oftentimes we use chromaticism, these notes outside of the scale, as a way of adding color and and depth and richness to a melody. And here it begins right from the start. We have this, this chromaticism putting us in the dream. Right. Not to belabor this point too much, but if we played this melody in not chromatically... Uh, the opposite of chromatically, diatonically. Yeah. Just using the notes of the scale that you're supposed to. Yeah. It would sound like this. Which is really boring. Yeah, or certainly not as sort of supernatural or something as the creepy chromaticism of the actual. Yes, too simple almost. And so supporting this dreamy chromatic quality... I think that the the next most obvious 
element which makes this deeply nostalgic would be just the surrounding sound, time signature, instrumentation, right? The song is melancholic. It's incredibly slow. The dreamy quality is felt by the slow pace of the song, um, and it's awash in the era's music of sort of uh, rich strings and this bass line that makes us think of older music. We all even get these carolers later on in the song. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like we're in the musical past. Right. It's very wholesome. It's very simple. It's very nostalgic. Yeah, I totally see that. There's something happening here, which is my absolutely favorite thing that happens in pop music, period. <laughs> okay, I already know what this is. <laughs> what is it? It's the minor four chord. Yes, the minor four chord. May your days be merry and bright. And may all your Christmases be white. Yeah, this one has such a lovely example. I immediately thought of you, Charlie. Yeah, so the minor four chord is this technique of, I guess I would describe it as uh, moving something from a, a happy major chord and then surprising us with this descending, what would be chromatic note. This colored note that takes us into the minor and it just makes you want to cry every time it happens. Yeah, it's such a heartbreaking moment. Even when you know it's coming, it's something that you can't help but feel moved by, I think. And it's been set up so well across the ages of music. I guess this would be one of the earlier examples that I know in pop music history, but of course it's employed throughout love songs in the history of popular music. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do you have any favorite examples of the minor four? Yeah, I mean, one of the most achingly precise ones that comes to mind is towards the end of the Beatles in my life mm-hmm. where he just sort of hangs on this minor four chord in my life, I love you before resolving to the final tonic chord and it's just an exquisitely painful and beautiful moment people use this all the time I love the minor four. So anyways, this is just one of the greatest examples of the minor four chord. As he resolves back home, he walks through this minor four. Uh, and you just take a listen and you it just wants to melt your heart. Yeah, it gets you right in the gut. And I can see what you mean that there's something about his use of the chord here that is very nostalgic because I think the feeling of nostalgia is kind of a mix of happy and sad emotions at once kind of a celebration of times past and also a longing for those times and and an understanding that they are in the past and they're not coming back Mm. a certain bittersweetness is I think an integral part of the feeling of nostalgia and that kind of chord progression really captures that it's that once beautiful, happy major, and then kind of sad, longing minor, and it, and that's the duality of nostalgia that we feel. I love that it happens over this line, may your days be merry and bright. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmas 
so there's almost a dual meaning to this may your days be merry and bright it, it's suggesting a message of hope but there's a music of melancholy whoa yeah even as the lyrics are brightening, the music itself is kind of darkening. And here again, when he sings, may your days be merry and bright, Yeah, we get to the highest note in the song. Interesting. So this contrast of height and wishfulness against a music which might be minor and wistfulness. Yeah, well, which is literally going down as the major third descends to a minor third, kind of almost like a battle between the melody and the harmony, the melody trying to move upwards and the harmony trying to move downwards. That tension seems to encapsulate the feeling of nostalgia in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, we could pivot towards talking about the second uh, criteria of the Christmas song formula, which is coverability. Yes. What do you have to say about coverability? Well, I'm just thinking about your analysis of this song right now, and something that's that's really striking about it is that this song is very easy to sing, and its composer, Irving Berlin, is kind of a master of this. That's exactly right. Of writing these melodies that move very cleanly from one note to another that are divided into very stable and elegant phrases that never go too high or too low, yep. that it couldn't be sung by just about anyone of any age with any musical background. Yep. I mean, this is kind of a masterful composition in its economy of means. It's so, uh, it's just laid out so beautifully and so, what's the word, with such kind of equilibrium as, as you were talking about. Yes. I think it's these characteristics that make this song very easy to cover and as we'll see, very easy to kind of put your own stamp on as well. You're absolutely correct. This song wants to be adapted and it asks for it, I think, actually within the composition of the piece, not just in the melody, but in so many of the elements. In fact, White Christmas was originally a film and we know that it's meant to be sung together because the film actually ends, the camera pulls out and everybody in this giant banquet hall is singing White Christmas together in chorus. And so I think that the choral nature, the simplicity of the melody has invited everyone from Sinatra I'm dreaming. to Kenny G to the cast of Nashville. Christmas. There are <laughs> over 500 covers of this song. Wow. And I said that within the composition itself, aside from just the melody, there's some other things that are asking for people to participate in creating their own versions. And I hear it just after we get this big choral part where Bing Crosby drops out and the chorus comes in like a, a bunch of carolers. Crosby later comes back and harmonizes by whistling over the top of the song. He actually invents a new melody. Oh, cool. Which is sort of in counterpoint to the original melody. Christmas. 
Oh, cool. So the original recording uh, implicitly offers an invitation to uh, other artists to put their own spin on this song. Yeah, the song is immensely simple. It basically has two verses, and they get repeated over and over with uh, different interpretations of carolers and whistling, and other artists come in to fill in the missing bits. So in 1944, we get a cover by Sinatra, and Sinatra adds the third most essential element to creating a successful Christmas hit. He brings in the sleigh bells. <laughs> Where the treetops glisten and kitties listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. There we go. And his cover is actually more or less uh, on point, very similar to the original. He does, in the introduction of the piece, add a reference to Jingle Bells. So I think an appropriate place to bring in the sleigh bells. Indeed. And just another example of taking the song and interpreting it in a new way. Lady Gaga did a cover <laughs> of the song recently. She did it a live cover and invents a whole new verse. This song is just too short. It's such a beautiful Christmas song, but it's only one verse. So I added one extra one. Here it goes. I'm dreaming of a white with a carrot nose and charcoal eyes. Whoa, okay, I love that. Wait, wait, I want to invent a verse for this song, Charlie. Can we do that later? <laughs> we can do that later, absolutely. Nice. But going to the top of what you said uh, in terms of the simplicity of the melody, I think this is what makes this song so interpretable. Yeah. Is that a word? Yeah, sure. We'll give sure, it to you. Sure, why not? It's super simple chords. It's basically just these two simple stanzas. It's easy to harmonize. And for the next many decades, people start to interpret this song in all sorts of new ways. And I think probably the most famous of all would be the 1954 version of White Christmas by The Drifters. So we'll play that. <laughs> Just like the ones I used to know Where those streets up listen And children listen to hear Sleigh bells in the snow Oh yeah, this is my jam. Tell me about the Drifters, Nate. Drifters were an important black R&B group of the 1950s who were one of the ensembles who were kind of active in moving vocal music from the smooth sounds of doo-wop to the more kind of raw sounds of R&B and soul. The mid-50s was definitely the inflection point for that transition. And I think you can kind of hear that happening in this song where we have kind of a doo-wop bass. B-A-S-E, like a found- doo-wop foundation happening. Yeah. But then on top of that, they're kind of introducing a little more edge, a little more blues, a little more rawness in the vocals into it. When I, I, I am dreaming 
So you can hear it kind of right on that precipice point between those two styles. And I wonder if this interpretation was created because Crosby's original was actually the first time that he appeared on Black-oriented charts. It did so well, just broadly, that it made it into the Harlem hit parade for three weeks. No way. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. And I think it's definitely possible to hear this cover by the Drifters as a, a way of like almost planting their their flag on this song and kind of making an argument that the song belongs now as much to black culture as it does to white culture that their interpretation of it discovers these blues possibilities and these kind of funky syncopations that are definitely not present in the Bing Crosby original and yet, as you were talking about, are sort of there latently just waiting to be unearthed by the right uh, interpreters. Yes, absolutely. What I find so curious about the first couple decades of covers of White Christmas is that they really interpret the song into new genres. So we'll just go through a quick uh, catalog of some of the best. Yeah. 1957, Elvis makes his famous country version of the song. Uh You can tell from the opening piano line. Right. He is referencing Western swing country music. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Just a few years later, 1960, Ella Fitzgerald takes the song into the jazz territory. Right, right, very good. In 64, Beach Boys, of course, introduce a surf version of the song. <laughs> Where the tree talks, listen, and children listen. But by 1966, with Dean Martin's cover of the song, we start to go back to the original, and the interpretation into new genres really halts, and we get these covers which become much more nostalgic for the original sound. May your days be merry and bright. In Dean Martin's version here, the only real difference is that he chooses to introduce a modulation. In the final verse, he uh, raises the song by one key. Gotcha. Right, but otherwise it's really just a retread of the Crosby original. Right, and so Dean Martin's version, I think, is one of the first that starts this multi-decade trend to reference the nostalgia of White Christmas through the sound of 1940s music rather than interpreting the inherently nostalgic chord progression, chromaticism, lyricism, artists will rely on the uh, instrumentation and the exact form of the original. Interesting. So now the song holds more power almost as a recognizable cultural artifact rather than a plastic, constantly changing surface to project new musical styles on. Like that's its value now is precisely its unchangeability. Exactly. I think its sameness is part of what makes it so successful, even though the original, as I suggest, 
really does want interpretation. If we look at artists that have covered the song in the last couple of decades, it really sounds so close to the original. Some will pare it down and have maybe just acoustic guitar or piano, but really is in the style of the original song. We can look at Katy Perry. Kelly Clarkson does the same thing. She adds maybe a little bit of melodic embellishment, but it's just a simple piano song referencing the original. Just like the ones I used to know. Rascal Flatts covers the song. Maybe there's some country twang, but it's pretty much the original. Yeah, interesting. Where the treetops glisten and chill. Wow, you really went deep with this one, Charles. I went really deep. One of my favorites is uh, Michael Bolton, who sings an epic high note, but really is just in the style of the original. Yeah. May your days be And one of the, the more recent covers of White Christmas by Michael Buble and Shania Twain is a sort of crossover cover of the Drifters' doo-wop version I'm dreaming of with some of the Christmas. Sinatra added in. Gotcha, okay. There's one exception to this trend. Ooh, uh, who is this going to be? Pentatonics. Pentatonics, our friends, they are inescapable right now. They're everywhere. They have done an acapella version of White Christmas, which is incredibly jazzy, very complex, rich, includes beatboxing. Uh, it blew me away. Man, we can just not, we cannot deny pentatonics. Ever since we did our acapella episode and talked about them, they have just been popping up again and again. All right, pentatonics, let's see what you got. But. But. I don't think it works. Oh, (laughs) damn. I really don't think that it works. Bring down the hammer, Charles. They have taken this song so far. They're making White Christmas this sort of upbeat, jazzy acapella track that I don't think is an appropriate interpretation of the piece. Oh, It's fast. They open with reference to the original material as sort of a slow caroling-like song. But by halfway into the song, we have this upbeat, jazzy, fast-moving piece uh, that may be a further extension of the sort of Sinatra big band, big strings and horn sort of sound. White Christmas. But it doesn't really fit the material. So it's lost some of that melancholy which we would determined was necessary for the song to really work. That's what I think. All the right, top fair enough. Charlie's naughty and nice list right here. <laughs> I do love pentatonics. I think that they are a beautiful sound. I mean, I love this cover. I just don't think that it it's right for the material. Fair enough. Direct your angry letters to <laughs> Charles Harding, <laughs> Los Angeles, California. <laughs> 
the top of the episode, we asked what makes a Christmas song successful. We have this very scientific formula of nostalgia, coverability, a plethora of sleigh bells, and I think we've hit all of these marks, but I'd like to suggest that there might be a fourth category. Ooh, cool. Just as the holidays are shrouded in the mystery and mythos of Santa Claus... I think a great holiday song has to have a secret mythology of its own. Ooh, okay. And we'll dig into that after the break, I imagine. Right after the break. Exactly. All right, let's get some sleigh bells to play us out here. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Welcome back to Switched on Pop. On the top half of the episode, we looked into all the ways in which White Christmas has uh, become the most successful song of all time. We believe that it is embedded in the melody, it's embedded in the compositional structure of the song, but I suggested that there is a secret myth about this piece. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to hand it to you, Nate, because I understand that you've gone deep into this mystery. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely right, Charles. White Christmas does indeed have a dirty little secret. (laughs) What's that? We know it as the song with the two stanzas only. Very, very simple, very straightforward. But in fact, its composer, Irving Berlin, originally wrote it with an opening verse that today is rarely, if ever, sung. I'll just recite them very quickly right now. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A. (laughs) But it's December the 24th, and I'm longing to be up north. Twist, Charlie. This dream of a white Christmas (laughs) is essentially the dream of a successful Tin Van Alley songwriter like Irving Berlin lounging 
poolside, presumably, yep. in Beverly Hills underneath the <laughs> swaying palm fronds and feeling a little nostalgic himself yep. for his childhood, which took place in New York City. Right. So in a snowy place. Right. When he was comparatively of little means, the son of Jewish immigrants from what's now Belarus coming to America at the turn of the century. Uh, making ends meet as a song plugger on the streets of New York City and eventually working his way up to be one of, if not the most successful songwriter of the 20th century. But this, so with this verse, this song has a very different kind of connotation. <laughs> In a way, it's almost a, a, a little bit ironic or a little tongue in cheek, you know? I've made it here. I'm living the good life here in Beverly Hills, but. I still yearn for the simple <laughs> joys of a white Christmas. <laughs> it's funny because it makes the song so much more personal at the songwriter's level, but much less universal for the listener. Yes, I think that's true. And it also highlights a certain sort of nonsensical aspect of the lyrics here, which is if you are in a good, I don't know, half of the country or half of the world right you don't have to dream of a white christmas you are possibly having a white christmas do you know what i mean like the lyric only truly makes sense in that universal way when it comes with the verse yeah i guess what i'm saying is i'm not i don't disagree with you but i think in some ways the yeah. the universalism of the lyric is the idea of this kind of unblemished, perfect, pristine winter wonderland kind of Christmas. It's the idea of it. It's not the reality of it. It's the dream. It's the dream. Exactly. Uh. And that is something that becomes detachable. And it's interesting. You know, the song, I mean, there's a lot that's been written about the song, including an entire mm. book just about white Christmas. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and Irving Berlin himself is a very interesting figure in American songwriting because in some ways he's such an outsider. He's an immigrant, a Jewish kid from New York City who writes these songs, including White Christmas, Easter Parade, God Bless America, that become these American anthems. Right. And a lot of people interpret these in a way as anthems of assimilation, anthems of the American melting pot and the American dream in some ways. Interesting. We don't need to spend too much time meditating on the irony that White Christmas and so many other Christmas songs were written by Jewish songwriters, including <laughs> um, Let It Snow, uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, oh my Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I mean, it goes on and on and on. In some ways, though, that's a beautiful metaphor for the American project and, and the possibility of this American experiment. You, you suggest that there's maybe another meeting about cultural assimilation and larger American values happening within this very simple Christmas tune. Yeah, I mean, well, so part of the reason it's so successful in when it's released in 1942 is that it becomes associated with the war effort and it really serves as a song to bring the country together, to bring soldiers at the front together, and very much somehow, even though there's no mention of America in it, it, it seems to become this very sort of patriotic anthem in a way. 
even though now it doesn't necessarily serve that function, I think it does, like we were talking about earlier, serve for us as kind of a piece of nostalgia wrapped in a piece of nostalgia where <laughs> it takes us back to this time when we did feel more united as a country. Mm. And simultaneously, it resonates with our own desire to be united with our, our families, friends, and, and loved ones during the holidays. I mean, this idea of dreaming of a white Christmas... And of course, he says towards the end, you know, he's writing Christmas cards as well. Speaks to the sense that right. half of the people who live in the American West weren't born there. So, you know, that's always been a region of, of pioneers and travelers. And then there's the sense around the holidays, like what, you know, what am I missing? I'm, I'm missing mm. my my roots, my family. Where you're, it, it becomes very apparent how uh in some cases like literally torn asunder we are from each other and i think that's part of the reason too why this song resonates i can picture when the song was written soldiers at war listening to white christmas and the dream of the white christmas being the dream of being home back with family and i can also see so many images of this song being used in Hollywood over a montage of people traveling through airports trying to get home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, I, I think that's exactly right. It continues to serve its function. Yeah, that, and, and again, this comes right back to, I think, what we began our discussion with, which is the interplay of hope and longing in this song and, and how kind of inseparable those are and how in some ways... The holidays can be the same kind of thing, especially for those who are joining as a family and then and then leaving to go to their separate homes. Mm. You know, it's at once this beautiful, joyous occasion, but tinged with this sense of impermanence and uh, certain lacrimose mm. layer to it. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting a little emotional now thinking about this, honestly. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think it's part of why the song lands. You know, I would even suggest that perhaps we're at a turning point where this desire for a white Christmas full of snow might take on new meaning in an era where there is less snow because of global climate change. I think about when I was a little kid in Maine and there was snow all the time. Yeah. And now we really hope for snow. Oh, so wow. I wonder if we might see new versions of this song that take on a sort of larger global environmental uh, uh, lens uh, and interpretation to the piece. Whoa, Chuck, you just rocked my world. That's <laughs> that's deep, man. Yeah, absolutely. You can imagine in 50 years that line, dreaming of a white Christmas, having a much, much heavier connotation. Well, maybe Irving Berlin saw it so well, sitting in California, having the melancholy and the hope all tied up together. This song is clearly not going anywhere. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I think we can probably end there. And I just want to say, Nate, happy holidays. Charlie, may all your Christmases be white. And may all your Christmases be And by the way, can I just say that's my favorite moment of the whole song? <laughs> Why? I just think it's a little joke he put in to this otherwise very serious song. Yeah? Just that little, the word Christmases is hysterical. <laughs> and it's never, I can't think of a single other Christmas song that uses the plural of Christmas. You don't even say that in real life. It's such a funny word. And it's wonderful. It makes me so, makes me smile every time I hear it. 
mail your Christmases. That, that's what I'm saying. It's the sage Irving Berlin seeing that this song is going to carry on Christmas over Christmas over Christmas and be replayed over and over. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh. That could be like the new ecological salutation. May all your Christmases be white. Let's save the world. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Happy holidays, Nate. Wow, man, I feel like there's still so much more to say about this song. Now, I'm, now my brain is buzzing, which is great because I'm going to hear it about a million <laughs> times in the coming weeks. So now I'll have a lot to think about as I do. All right. Beautiful, Nate. Let's keep on listening. Indeed. This episode of Switched On Pop was produced by me, Charlie Harding. And edited by our amazing editor, Bill Lance, and myself, Nate Sloan. All of our design is done by the incredible Luke Harris. We are a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network, and you can find more of our shows on any podcast player or at our website, switchedonpop.com. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Facebook and on Twitter. We love to have conversations about music, so find us at switchedonpop. Um, We're going to be taking a little bit of a break for the holidays, and we'll be back in the new year. Until then, thanks thanks for for listening. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.